I'm going to be preaching a message entitled Silence in Heaven and Sounds from Trumpets. I'm going to be covering all of Revelation chapter 8 today. Revelation chapter 8 introduces us, as we mentioned last week, to the seal, uh, the conclusion of the seal judgments and the introduction of the trumpet judgments. And just to remind us that there was a scroll, and when this scroll is opened, it is the plan for the conclusion, the eschaton of the world. And this scroll is now in the hands of Jesus. He was the only one found worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hands. And He began to open the seals one by one. These seals, of course, would hold that scroll closed and protect the contents from unauthorized viewing or uh, viewing at an inappropriate time. Jesus is the only one found worthy. And as you know, as He took the scroll, there was great worship in heaven. And yet, as He began to open, break open those seals, judgment was released upon the earth. Through the seal judgments, various judgments of of God's wrath was hurled to the earth. And various forms of destruction has had hit uh, the earth in the first four seal judgments. And then there was, a, there was a break at different judgment with the fifth and the sixth. And now we're at the seventh. There was probably a tremendous amount of anticipation in the breaking of the seventh seal because this was the final and complete seal. And once this seal has, is broken... The scroll can be opened revealing and accomplishing the will of God. Theologians tell us that in terms of the time frame within the seven year tribulation period, that we are now more than halfway through. We are probably in the four year time frame. So it's not that these judgments happen one after another after another somewhat as though you would read them happening and occurring in the same day. These Each judgment would last for a significant period of time before the next seal was broken and the next judgments were unfolded. And the next seal was broken and the next judgment was unfolded. I think it's important for us to be reminded that that in the God's pouring out His wrath and judgment upon the earth is still only being done in partial stages in the world, even yet through the seals and the trumpets that we're studying now and the bold judgments that are coming up. In all of these, and the devastation and destruction that comes upon the earth is not the wrath of God in its totality. It is still limited in measure and partial in completion. The full wrath of God will be poured out and revealed and we'll read about that in the coming days. And it will be unmeasured in its fullness, but not here and not now, even in the midst of these horrific judgments that come upon the earth. 
with the breaking of each seal, immediately with the breaking of the first four seals, there was a rider on a horse who would come and the horse would have a name and be sent into the judgment. In this case, all of those who would be there, you and I have the opportunity to read ahead and you and I have the opportunity to see that that the breaking of the seventh seal leads not into the, the fullness or the completion of God's plan, but it just unleashes the next set of judgments that comes in more rapid succession and comes in more severity in terms of uh, uh, its, its, its devastation. So perhaps what those in heaven, perhaps even John himself, thought would be the conclusion of the portion of the judgment of God. He would open the plan of God, usher in His kingdom, and accomplish all of those things. In the breaking of the last seal actually led to inside those seven inside that seventh seal were the fullness of the trumpet judgments and if you've had a chance to read ahead you know that in the breaking open or the sounding of the seventh trumpet that wasn't then either that was the initiation of the bowl judgment so these are happening in cascading succession they are happening in growing in rapidity and growing in the severity of each of the judgments of God. And yet there's something vastly different in the start of this one. What I want to do is I want to, us to look, first of all, at the silence in heaven. And this will be found in Revelation chapter 8, 1 through 5. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, verse 1 says, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So in each of the successive judgments before, upon the breaking of the seal, there was an immediate reaction, response. There was something John immediately saw. There was a horse that immediately showed up. There was something that happened and occurred immediately. Yet this time, and imagine the anticipation and the build-up of opening that seventh seal. Imagine all of that. Here we are. Here we go. Ready? Let's break open that seal. And when we broke, when John, when Jesus broke open that seal, rather than anything happening immediately, all of heaven grew silent and remained silent in heaven for about half an hour. Now, scholars have looked at different reasons for this silence in heaven. Some have said that this 30 minutes of silence in heaven is giving people on earth time to <coughs> repent before the next wave of judgment comes. And perhaps that is true. Others say that perhaps what it is, is it's just anticipation and building up of all the things uh, that is about to happen. And before God begins to move, and before God begins to be the one in action, there is this anticipation and this waiting in silence. Regardless of what it is, and there's seven or eight theories of the silence, and I won't take time to look at all of these today, but, but regardless of what the theory is, I want you to imagine, if you will, the awkwardness 
of the silence in heaven in comparison to all the things that we've seen thus far. Think about the peals of thunder and the lightning that are around the throne. Think about the calling of the loud voice. Who is worthy to open the seals? That would be loud enough to call for those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Anyone found worthy to come forth. And of course, there was no one there. Imagine the thundering voices of the living creatures who were calling out in praise to God and singing adoration. Imagine the 24 elders there in heaven joining in with those angels in praise and worship as we have seen before. Imagine the great multitude that was saved out of the tribulation that finds their place in heaven. Imagine the the groans from those martyrs under the altar who are crying out and to God and saying, when will you avenge our death? Heaven is going to be a loud place. Now that's going to bother some of y'all because you don't like it loud. Turn that down, right? Heaven is loud. And there in the presence of worship of all of these people and all of these continuing praise, immediately with the breaking of the seventh seal, there's a period of silence. You ever notice that when it's loud and all of a sudden it gets silent? It's sort of awkward. Sometimes when we are so caught up in the busyness of life and we are silent, in a period of silence, it feels awkward. In those intentional pauses, it kind of catches our attention. It fills us with anticipation of what's next. And, and I would simply ask this question if you want to, I mean, imagine the scale of emotion that was taking place and going on there. But, but, but let me ask you this when is the last time? in a group of people, because remember, John's not alone by himself in heaven. When is the last time that you stood in the midst of a great crowd of people and there was nothing but silence for an extended period of time? The Bible says that it was for about half an hour, you and I know because it just says there was silence in heaven, it immediately tells us how long that silence lasted. They would have no clue or no idea. They would be there anticipating second by second, minute by minute. Was there moving? Was there what was taking place or going on? There was no noise. It was silence. It's not just that no one was speaking. No one was speaking. No one was doing anything to cause any noise whatsoever. They were there in silence for about half an hour. The awkwardness, the anticipation, the expectation of what was coming next certainly would have um, built as this silence lingered on. 
And John says, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And we mentioned last week the fact that there's a, um, a direct article in front of this seems to specify that there are seven angels. Uh, some theologians call them the presence angels and that their task in ministry is to be in the presence of God. Others are ministering spirits going about. The book of Hebrews says that we oftentimes uh, or sometimes on occasion entertain angels unaware. But these are special angels, a special subset of angels who are the presence angels who stand in the presence of God and attend to His every beck and call. Whatever He asks them to do, wherever He asks them to go, these are there. They accomplish that task and come back. We said last week that even before uh, that that um, uh, Gabriel and Michael would be these particular angels. Some perhaps would call them archangels. Are they the same as the archangels, special angels? We don't know. But the angels do have rank, file, and order. Cherubim, seraphim, archangels, ministering spirits. There are rank and files of angels, both good and bad, principalities and powers and forces and evils of darkness that are arranged and organized in, in, in order of responsibility, in order of calling and things along those lines. And there are these seven angels who stand before God. And in with those angels standing there, seven trumpets were given to them. Seven trumpets were given to them. Now trumpets were used all throughout the Bible. So we would anticipate and expect trumpets to be found in the book of Revelation as well. Trumpets were used in a time of war to signify that danger was coming. They would sound the trumpet. Or at the place of the attack, when it was time to attack. The way that they would sneak the troops in place and surround something, the blast of the trumpet would be the signal for them to go and attack. But trumpets were also used at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Trumpets were used at the enthronement of the king in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 34. And in the enthronement of Psalms at the worship of Yahweh. So when they would enter into worship, it would be the sound of the trumpet that would initiate time for worship to begin. Trumpets were blown before the burnt offering in Numbers chapter 10. Trumpets were used in the Levitical feast we see in Leviticus 23. Trumpets were used to call the nation to repentance in a time of disaster. And at the bringing in of the ark, the trumpets would blast. In Jewish life, there were at least 21 blasts of the trumpet daily in the temple, and on feast days, as many as 48 blasts of the trumpet. Seven priests blew trumpets at the fall of Jericho, and at the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Over and over and over, the trumpet blast were an important, integral part of Jewish life and Jewish ritual, and it was used for many, many different purposes. Here, these trumpets were given to these seven angels in the presence of God, and as they received them, they stood there with those trumpets, possibly a a ram's horn that had been heated and and rolled out to, to be a trumpet called a shofar, 
or possibly a, another type of trumpet. But as they received those trumpets there, imagine the silence in heaven. No movement, no activity, just silence. And then these seven angels are given these trumpets. And John sees that while these angels are receiving their trumpets and standing there, that there's another angel scurrying about around the altar. Notice what it says, if you, if you would, in verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that might, he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne." In Levitical times, there would be two altars. There would be one inside the Holy of Holies, and there would be one outside the Holy of Holies. And as I said last week, as the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, they would initially enter in uncovered by a, the blood of a sacrifice. The purpose was to go in and to pour out the blood of the animal on the Ark of the Covenant, thereby signifying the covering of the people's sins by the shedding of the blood. The priest was not a holy man who was free from sin himself, and God allowed him to enter into the Holy of Holies with his sins uncovered by the shedding of blood until he could pour that on there. And the way that he was protected is through the burning of incense and the smoke that would follow him and go with him into the temple. And the people outside would be praying for him and the smoke and incense rising was viewed, as God says, as being an acceptable aroma and acceptable sacrifice in his nostrils and the priest would go in in that earthly tabernacle foreshadowing what John is seeing taking place here in the book of Revelation. Except here something certainly interesting is happening because here it says that as that, as that incense was, was given to him, he says that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. So somehow, someway, as we mentioned last week, all the prayers that are prayed do not just dissipate into thin air. They don't just come out of our mouths and, and drop on the ground. They don't just go to the sea and, and, and stop there. Particularly if our sins are confessed and we are in a right fellowship with God, our prayers go and enter into the throne room of God. And here they are in this bowl, on this altar. Particularly in this case, it seems that the specific prayers that are being mixed in with that incense that's going up into the nostrils of God are the prayers of the, those who are under the altar that we read about in Revelation chapter 6 with the martyrs. Remember Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, at the breaking of the fifth seal, under the altar of the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of their testimony. And they cried out with a loud voice to God and crying out with a loud voice to God is praying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they're crying out these prayers 
In the specific context, these prayers would be there and now this angel is taking and wrapping those prayers in incense and offering up to God in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to Him. What a picture of prayer for all of us. But I want to talk just specifically about these specific prayers that are praying. And I want to remind us of a couple of truths today. First of all, I don't want you to read from this and read into this particular passage that we should in any way be praying to angels. Nowhere in the Bible does it mention that that would be the case. However, if you think about it, there would be people who would read a passage like this and they would say, I want to make sure my prayer gets to God. And if I want my prayer to get to God, I need to get in good with the angels. So I'm not just going to send this prayer up. I'm going to put it into the hands of the angel who can send it on to God. No, no, no. There's nothing doing that. Uh, Also, I want you to understand that it just says, notice what it says in Revelation 8. It says that it was mixed... That, that, that so that He might add it to the prayers of all the saints. This angel is not sorting and separating and discerning the request either. There, there is no... This angel is not working through and seeing who used the most religious language. Who is the most sincere? Who's more right with more righteous in their actions and activities than others? And we're going to let their prayers go first. It doesn't say that at all. He's just taking all the prayers of all the saints, surrounding it in incense with that fire plate or that censer, and they are going up to God. And you'll notice that this is in the throne room of God. And I want you to understand that there is no mention, indication whatsoever that God is not pleased with the activity that's happening before Him in the throne. And I want you to think about that just a minute. I don't want you to miss that point. In the, in the taking all of the prayers and, and, and wrapping them in incense and sending them up to God to be a sweet-smelling aroma, clothed in smoke in the presence of God. God's taken, breathe all in. There's not a single indication of His dissatisfaction in receiving these prayer requests at all. In fact, the idea and the mindset is that God is there and when this sweet-smelling incense comes and the smoke in the room comes, that God is there and He's breathing and taking it all in and enjoying it and then acting upon them. Now, I'll tell you why this is very fascinating. It's very fascinating because in the context of the prayers that are being prayed, we can learn something. What 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 do I mean? What do I mean by this? What do I mean? Worship and justice are intertwined. You know, because Corbin's already read it for us today, that in this, this is going up. This is an this is worship. This is offering up to God praise and prayer requests and all these things before God. And you know, because we've read ahead, that God's going to take all that and wrap it up and send it to earth in judgment. So I want you to see that that worship and justice are intertwined. The prayers of the saints 
are in this in the immediate context by application because of the prayers for all the saints. But in this immediate context, the prayers of the saints are those found in Revelation chapter six nine through eleven, which is a call for God for justice and vengeance on those who took their lives. This is mixed with incense and a golden altar, showing that these prayers are acceptable to God and please Him. Did you hear that? They are praying what the psalmist call imprecatory prayers. God, You bring vengeance on those who took our lives. How long, God, before You do that? And God is not up there going, no, 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 no. Don't pray that prayer. Don't pray imprecatory prayers. Don't pray prayers. Listen, God is glad that they are not, and we, when we, He's glad when we don't take revenge and vengeance in our own hand and try to exact that on another because we have no capacity to be able to do that in a just manner. But God does. God is pleased by the prayers of these who are calling for Him to act justly. When they ascend to God, He responds through the angel, and as the sense was filled with fire from the heavenly altar and hurled to earth, initiating the trumpet judgments, this tells us that such imprecatory prayers are not only in keeping with His will, but also have a place in the life of the believer. Now you all pray imprecatory prayers, but you always preface them, and I do too, is, Lord, I probably shouldn't feel this way and I probably shouldn't pray it, but I'm going to. Now, now, beloved, if it is true that you shouldn't feel that way and you ought not to pray that prayer, then don't pray it. But what I also want you to understand is, is there is a time and a place There is a time and a place to turn the injustice that's been done to you, to turn the things that have made you into a victim. There is a time and place when you have been treated unjustly, not to take matters in your own hands and handle themselves, but to offer them up to God. In fact, turn them over to God that He may deal with them in a way that seems right and good and just to Him. These type prayers allow us to place our deep hurts before God and know that He will deal justly with those who have mistreated us. Thus we can overcome these deep hurts and love the unlovely. Why? Because we've entrusted them into the hands of God. And listen, when you take a situation that has been hurtful to you, when you take a situation that has been trying to you, and a situation when you've been treated unjustly and you turn them over to God, you are free to love them because God is the one that's going to deal with them and you no longer have to. God, here in Revelation chapter 6, they offer the prayer and they never got an answer. Sometime later, here, God takes their prayer and He answers it in a way that is for His own glory. Because He takes these prayers in that fire and He hurls them to earth in the sounding of the trumpets.
the judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all God's response to the imprecatory prayers of the martyred saints. They are praying how long? They are praying, as we said last week, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Christians have offered up, as saints throughout the generations have offered up their prayers and offered up that specific prayer, it is at this particular time that God receives those prayers wrapped in an acceptable, sweet-smelling aroma and He acts on those prayers in His own timing, in His own way, in a way that brings Him the most glory. So as I said last week, it is vitally important. What a, what a beautiful picture of prayer this is. That's why we keep praying. That's why we keep praying. That's why Jesus says you ought to, ought to always pray and not lose heart. That's why we ought to join together where two or three are praying. That's why we ought to pray together as a church. That's why we ought to pray without ceasing as individuals. We ought to always be in connection, in relationship to God, always casting our cares upon Him, placing our, our requests into His throne room. God has invited us through prayer to come into His throne room of grace that we may obtain help and find mercy at our point of need. And when we pray and offer up those prayers, those prayers are sweet-smelling incense. They're aroma acceptable to God. And He answers those prayers according to His perfect will. I don't want us to miss. I don't. I don't want us to miss that in God's economy, that He, in His sovereignty and in His providence, to accomplish that which He says He's going to do, has agreed to do that in connection with the prayers that are prayed. We believe in sovereignty of God. We believe in divine providence. We believe that nothing happens that God is not in complete control of. We believe that though things often occur to us, it has occurred to us that nothing ever occurs to God. God is free to do all that He pleases. He is divine. He is powerful in all His ways. He does His will, His purpose, the way He does it on His time frame. And beloved, nothing or no one can prevent and can stop it and can change His mind. And yet, somehow in that sovereignty and in that providence and in the showing of God's power and strength to bring about His will, He includes the prayers of the people. That's why the Bible says the faithful fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. God has chosen the path of saints praying to accomplish and fulfill His will. God has chosen to include our prayers in His purpose and in His plan and in His providence. I don't understand how that works, but I believe it. And I think we see a great example of it here and in other places where God calls us to pray. He invites us to pray. He brings us in and He says, pray to Me. Right? Cast all your cares upon Me. Believe in, in Me. Believe, as we sang earlier, believe in Me. Believe that I am who I say I am. Believe that You are who You are. And God wants to... I don't get it. But use us. And even... 
our prayers in His sovereignty and in His providence to accomplish His plan. These prayers are acceptable to God. God takes these prayers of all the saints that went up before Him. The angel took the censer and he filled it with fire. Verse 5 says, and what did he do with them? He threw them to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. God wasn't taking the prayers of the saints and once He heard the content of those prayers, rejecting them and getting them out of His presence. That's not what He's doing. He is receiving the prayers of the saints. He he finds them acceptable to Him. And He is now using the prayers of the saints in judgment upon the earth to bring about the answers to those prayers. And even as we said last week, is that not a wonderful picture for us in our prayer and how we ought to pray? That's why you ought to pray before you witness to people. You talk to them about God, they're not interested. You talk to them about heaven, they could care less. You talk to them about hell and the devastation of hell and it goes up, falls on their ears unfazed in any way. They don't believe it they don't, and they think that you're crazy for believing it. And yet you continue to pray for them. You continue to dialogue with them. You continue to, in, in, to share the Gospel with them. You continue to invite them to receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. But in all the time while you're sharing the Gospel and doing those things, you're praying for them. And you're praying for them. You have your church family praying for them. You have their family. You have everybody that you can praying for them. And as those prayers find their place in that bowl there before God, this angel wraps them in a pleasing sense and aroma before God and God sends the answer to the earth so that they're at work or wherever they are driving down the road and they look up and they see the sky they stand at the edge of the ocean and where they've just noticed the waves before now they begin to see the the creation the creative powers of God they begin to reflect and recall the Bible verses that you've shared with them, the truths that you've taught them, and it begins to find itself lodged in their mind and in their heart where they can't get away from it. And that is God answering your prayers and coming down and coming to answer them. It's as much as if God took your prayers and the prayers of all those who were prayed and wrapped it in fire and sent it down to Him to open His eyes to be able to believe that which was unbelievable to Him before. Beloved, that's why we ought to pray without ceasing. That's why we ought to pray. So not only do we see the silence in heaven, but we also see the sounds from the trumpets. Notice verse 6 and what it says, And the seven angels who had seven trumpets, they prepared themselves to sound them. The Bible doesn't say how they prepared themselves. It doesn't say anything at all that they needed to do. I don't know if it just means that they put the trumpet in place, they gathered their breath. I don't have a clue. Do angels even breathe? Do they have to breathe in and breathe out? I I don't know. 
I don't, I don't know what they had to do, but in that which they were about to do that God had given them to do, they took time to prepare themselves. And I want you to understand this principle, and I think it applies to us today. And that is, before we jump in mission and ministry, doing what God wants us to do, that we ought to take time to prepare ourselves. We ought not to just be doing it in a, in a, uh, in a, uh, a way that we're not prepared. We might need to take some time to repent and to cleanse ourselves that we would not be a hindrance to the Spirit of God flowing and moving as we participate in acts of service. It might mean that we just need to gather ourselves together. We need to consecrate ourselves. It may mean that we need to confess our sin. It may mean that we just need to get right and we need to put some planning and some practice in place before we engage in that ministry which God has called us to do. All I know is here it says that these angels, they prepared themselves to sound them. And what we see in the rest of... Revelation chapter 8 in verse 7 we have the first one sounded in verse verse 7 the first one sounded in verse 8 the second angel sounded in verse 10 the third angel sounded in verse 12 the fourth angel sounded and then there is a break a respite just like there was these are the judgments the first four trumpet judgments are going to be hurled and come to earth and deal with the earth and deal with the cosmos around the earth and going to be done in human form and fashion. And then the next three are going to be demonic in activity in nature. That's why there's a break, just like there was between the seals. You had the first four seals that were all the, the, the riders on horsemen. And then you had the, the, the uh, other ones. Here you have these four trumpets and the blast of these four trumpets deal with judgments upon the earth and then the last three deal with demonic activity and is a judgment to there. It's interesting that these trumpets that we will read about, they are designed specifically by God and are not done haphazardly. These trumpet plagues, they replicate the Egyptian plagues and they address the problem of idolatry or the earthly gods not only in the Roman Empire but also among the Christian cults of the province of Asia. The purpose of these judgments that come from the blasting of these trumpets is to prove the sovereignty of God and to give a last chance for repentance. With each one Another part of this world experiences partial destruction, not total or complete destruction, though God could do that and will. And each one produces an action where the angel fills the censer with fire and hurls it to the earth. Here, each angel sounds a trumpet and a judgment is hurled down to earth. And in relation to the seals and bowls, the trumpets have the same pattern. The first four deal with the earth. And then you're going to have two deal with demonic. And then you're going to have one that pours out the trumpet judgments. The purpose of the first four judgments is primarily to disprove the earthly gods and to show that Yahweh alone is on the throne. Let's look at them. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, the first sounded, and there came hell and fire mixed with blood, and they were hurled or thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, 
and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, I don't know, and the Bible doesn't specify whether this came and hit one part of the earth, and if you were to look at the visual of the earth from a satellite and see that all of this one-third took place at one particular portion or part of the earth. Or, if it happened all over the earth, and if you were to total up all the devastation destruction, it would equal to one-third. The Bible doesn't say... But it just says that in this first judgment, that one-third of the actual earth itself was destroyed. Imagine the life that would be disrupted. Imagine the fear that it would cause. And And God's doing this specifically to go against the gods of this world. Notice what it says in verse 8. The second sounded, second angel sounded the trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And what happened? In the first one, a third of the world was destroyed. Here, a third of the sea became blood. Now, I don't know what caused that. I don't know if that being thrown in, right, blew apart the fish and the blood of the fish caused it, or God who created blood and contained it by our flesh, if He... I don't don't have a clue. It doesn't say what happened. It just says that a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life and died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, I don't know. Did it happen at one sea? Did it happen in one ocean? Or was it spread all the way around the globe, and the total of the devastation happened all around the globe. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It just says this is, this is what happened and this is the results. In verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Now the devastation, now it comes onto the earth, now begins to affect human life again. And then verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Each of these judgments addresses a different aspect of life in the ancient world and in the modern world as well. The first shows that the material world is no answer. There's no God. It can't do anything. It can't defend. The second and the third address the sea trade, including food supplies. And the fourth focuses on life itself in the heat and light of the celestial bodies. The four together prove that those who live only for this world have chosen foolishly, for only in God is there true life. Earthly things turn on us and we dare not depend on them. We put our place in trust in the heavens, in the heavenlies, where God says we are seated with Him spiritually on the right hand of God. If you were to look now at a circle 
where we have the church gone and we have the first judgments gone and one third of the people died and then another third. By now what you would see in terms of the total population of the earth is from 12 o'clock all the way down to about the 7. More than half of the earth has now been destroyed and has been wiped out and wiped away and all that remains is the final portion. And this is just the first four of the trumpet judgments. We have the next three and all of the bowl judgments to come. No wonder the Bible says that after all of this is complete, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth for the former things have been destroyed. What does this mean for us? What is the application for us? I think the application for us and for me as I've reflected on this this week is a couple of things. How grounded are you to this world? And how much of your focus is spent on the things within this material world? Beloved, those things are here today and gone tomorrow. Everything that you hold, everything that you possess, everything that you think that you need and you have to have will ultimately be destroyed. It will ultimately be gone and you can't take any of it with you. What I think this reminds us of in addition to examining ourselves and making sure idolatry is not there uh, as part of our lives and continuing to identify and crucify the idols in our lives is I think it ought to remind us of a heavenly perspective when it comes to all the things of the earth. And if we have a heavenly perspective, we don't hold on to our things too tightly. We hold those things with an open hand. And what God gives us, we praise Him for. And what God takes away, we praise Him for. The way it is and the things that we endure and the life that we live and the possessions we have and all the things that this world has to offer is nothing compared to all that we're going to have with Him in all of eternity. No wonder the singer said, you can have this whole world just give me Jesus. I don't know about you, but there's different times in my life that this world has a stronger hold on me than it should. And we need to be reminded today that God doesn't want us to cling tightly to the things of this world. He wants our mind, our focus, and our perspective to be on the things that are above. I was reminded of that yesterday. I was teaching a doctoral seminar, uh, part of the doctoral seminar with um, at Carolina Bible Institute Seminary. And I was assigned to Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 2 reminds us that, that God has taken us and He has not only made us alive in Christ, but He has seated us. He has raised us up, seated us in the heavenlies with Him. And, and the thing that comes out of that and the thing that I'm reminded is is when I'm down here in this world in this perspective and look around I'm always comparing horizontally I can't see I have no wisdom and understanding of the things that are happening and going on my perspective is limited because it is an earthly perspective but through the shed blood of Christ He has called us He has raised us up into the heavenlies so that we have the ability to see things from a heavenly perspective we have the ability to get God's perspective on things and therefore the things that we do with our time this world doesn't understand why you're here today this, and some of you don't understand why you're here this long today 
But listen, but from God's perspective, you're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. The world doesn't understand why you give 10% of your income to a church. But God, when He's raised you up, He gives you a perspective of that. The world doesn't understand why you feel it necessary to open your Bible every day and to read it and perhaps to journal, engage in whatever spiritualness that you disciplines that you engage in. The world doesn't understand that at all. And if you look at the world, you don't understand either, but God has raised you up and shown you that there's meaning and significance and value in those things. Moss family, the world says you're crazy for leaving the plushness of America and all the things that we have here in the wealthy United States of America to give your life in, in, in Africa for people who only a few of all that you touch will ever show any gratitude or appreciation. And some may come to faith in Christ, but the vast majority will not. And yet you, you, you go because God has raised you up and He's given you, He's given you the ability to see from heavenly perspective of the value and purpose of your life that it's but a vapor here. And whatever He calls us to do is only going to rush to get us there. I think it's important, church, that we understand that God holds all these things in His hands and He is in absolute control. And yet He does that all according to the prayers of the saints who pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that You are our God. And we are so thankful that You care about us and that that our prayers, our requests, the things that we that we put, that we send up, are not annoying you. They are received by you. They're a sweet-smelling aroma, Father. I pray that Lord that we would be a praying people, and I pray, Father, that we would consider all the things that happen in this world from heavenly perspectives that You would realign our priorities and our perspectives to be ready for when the trumpet sounds. Father, I'm thankful that the first trumpet we as believers will hear will be the sound of the Lord Jesus coming to call His children home. And then the trumpet judgments follow after that. Father, I'm thankful for that. Continue to um, bear uh, on us uh, the burden for lost people all around us. And Father, continue to help us to implant spiritual truths in their lives that they may receive it and respond now or they may do so again in a greater capacity down the road. Father, help us to invest in them in their life and spiritual things. Teach us, Lord, to let go of all this world has to offer. And may we remember in all things that You are truly great and You are our Lord. We love You. In Jesus' name, amen.